Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Morning. End of the year. Lots of things going on inside and outside of work, you know, so it's more important to have a cup of joe and uh, always good to spend some time with you. We've got, uh, after a bit of reflection, you and I uh, talked about a potential podcast where, a video podcast, where we might talk about uh, three of the most impactful uh, publications in our respective uh, journals. And uh, I think it's a good way to uh, end the year um, in terms of what we do at Ortho Joe. So we'll do this uh, a little bit of give and take. And uh, since you're the younger and better looking, I'm going to have you go first. Uh, I might say younger. I will not say better looking, but uh, and, and even younger is debatable at this point. Everything's, you know, physiologic versus actual chronologic. Who knows? You still have um, some dark hair in there. I have none. So. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Well, you have more hair. So let's, let's, let's leave it at that. Um, one thing I will say is, you know, how we chose and how you decided to choose papers. I'll, I'll speak a little bit to uh, OE. I looked at also kind of number of quote views as one of our metrics, but I gotta be honest, you know, taking a little bit of the editor in chief uh, role here of ortho evidence, I did look at studies at the time that I felt really resonated with 2021. So some of those things got bumped up and down, just letting you know, there might be a little bit of bias uh, associated with why some of these have been chosen. So not purely scientific, not purely scientific, but I hopefully people will resonate with these, with these, uh, with, with the three I've chosen anyway. So I can lead off uh, yeah, one of okay. our, um, you know, so it's incredible how quickly this year has gone. And I thought we'd be in a different place than we are. And I think we are to some degree, we have made progress, but one of the uh, papers that we brought out um, in ortho evidence, this was the January edition. Actually, it was the January 3rd, first insight that we'd put out. And the title we put out for it was Towards Excellence, 12 Habits for a New Year. And while I didn't think that was going to be that impactful, looking at where we've been, I do think that if anything, when I look back at this year, and I look back at that paper, uh, it resonates pretty well. Let me just quickly, if I can, just rhyme through these 12 things very quickly, Mark, and then get your take uh, on them. So the 12 habits that I think apply even now as we end the year are scheduling time for yourself, getting places early, choosing a presence and having an attitude of gratitude, focus on quality connections, limit your obligations, lose the sphere, take initiative, but be patient, be more honest, open, and vulnerable, take time to reflect, bring out the best in others, and last but not least, always seek mentorship. Kind of resonates with me as we end the year. Also think about where we're going. Yeah, well, I also would, uh, I commended you before about your, your postings on LinkedIn, and it, it goes right along with what you've been uh, posting lately about spending time with people that we work with yet really don't know them. Uh, and uh, it really fits with that, that whole theme of the balance is the key in life. Uh, right, and, you know, and I... Yeah, and I, I think, you know, whether you're uh, an orthopedic surgeon working in a busy academic center or a busy community, or you're an allied healthcare professional who's a, you know, who's a listener, uh, helping, you know, 
you know, the care of patients with orthopedics, all of us have to find somehow, um, you know, to be quote whole uh, and to be most effective. And I do think that we sometimes, you know, push that stuff away in lieu of the core day-to-day work, which is really important. But when you look back, you know, these 12, these 12 rules, I think are equally as important. So anyways, made my top list. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to start this off. And actually my way of deciding, I, I, I did it purely on the number of downloads in 2021. Uh, and interestingly enough, the number one uh, fits quite well with what you chose as number one for OE. It was a uh, AOA critical issues uh, manuscript uh, entitled Leadership, Communication, and Negotiation Across a Diverse Workforce, a Critical Issues Symposium by my, uh, my colleague uh, and chair, Dennis Closey, Mike Zemsky, and Joanne Lipman was printed, presented at an AOA meeting. And it really is a, an extension of what you just alluded to with your OE selection, uh, extended to uh, positions of leadership uh, in our field of orthopedics. And I suspect the reason why it's number one is it's being used in the curriculum in, in residencies uh, and in other leadership arenas to help people begin to understand the best way uh, to lead. Uh, so those two really mesh quite nicely. You know, and the thing is, yeah, and the thing that, that I find so uh, amazing is that the issues of of you know trying to get to uh, you can say equality, equity, inclusivity, and diversity have always been here, but for whatever reason, the conversation heightened in the last. It seems to me in the last two to three years, <clears throat> and we've seen a greater, I think, recognition of those issues. So, very appropriately, so you would see that there would be great uptake, uh, you know, for that paper. I've always looked at diversity kind of as being optics. You know, you can you can bring various groups of people. Um, and, uh, you know, and create uh, somewhat artificially what appears to be diversity. But if you really want to get um, people engaged, you've got to include them somehow, have to include all, all people of all types uh, inc- uh, to be included. We've had lots of podcasts on this together yes. uh, recently on this topic, Mark, and I know you've been a huge advocate. And anyways, it, 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 all this just goes to tell you that uh, orthopedic surgeons are a broad you know, have a broad area of focus and interest uh, and actually in many ways uh, lead in many, many areas, you know, where we have sometimes get, you know, told that we are just operators in a, in a period of time in an operating suite. I think we're much more than that, which I think these sorts of studies help highlight. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So what's the number two from OE? Yeah, so, okay. So again, I'm picking another one that came out in January. So I, I don't know if we just had a good run in January of 2021, but we had put another insight out called Vaccine Hesitancy with a fairly provocative title, a top 10 threat to global health. Now, at that time, the whole focus was to really, uh, you know, get into the idea that, you know, maybe if we don't get people vaccinated, that's going to be an issue. Let me give you some quote, um, some data right now. Right now around the world, at least from the data that I've been able to dig up, there have been 3.6 individuals fully vaccinated and about 8 billion or so have had at least, uh, when they say have, there have been 8 billion vaccines or some odd numbers given all worldwide. Now, USA... Current vaccination rate. Do you want to take a guess? Do you want to take uh, a guess? Fifty percent. Sixty-one. So you're you're close. And Canada is a little bit higher at seventy-seven. Um, you know, and some of the developing nations. We can talk all about that. Like India, for example, is about thirty-eight percent, right? And Africa is probably in that number as well. You know, depending on what country within the, the continent. 
But here's the point. The quote that I'll quote from that, from our original paper is the following. Developing a safe, effective coronavirus vaccine will be a monumental achievement, but it might not be enough. Encouraging people to actually get the vaccine might be the real battle. And people are even less predictable than viruses. And that was the quote in that original document. And here we are today with Omicron, you know, becoming very quickly becoming and will become the most dominant of the variants after the Delta virus. And this, you know, another wave of cases, Canada seeing more increasing cases uh, recently. I suspect the U.S. may have the same issues and worldwide we're having these issues. So we haven't quite dealt with it. And for that reason, I think this issue in that particular paper uh, continues to resonate today. And that is why it was my number two choice. Yeah, great choice. And I would uh, just point out that I, I follow Kent Anderson, who was actually the CEO at JBJS, uh, who uh, was in charge when I was uh, recruited to be the editor in chief. His blog has uh, pointed out a big part of why this continues today is the business model behind social media, where in fact, disinformation or flat out incorrect information gets more clicks than true science or, or true facts. And that's it's really it's something that I, I believe our Congress has, has gotten interested in both on both sides of the aisle. And, and I'm hopeful that uh, somehow that we can we can see a change in this and really return to truth as a standard. Because, you know, OE and JBGS, we're all about finding what's true uh, to, to improve care of orthopedic patients and patients worldwide. So, well, well absolutely true. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, this is the, you know, when you and I were growing up, uh, we didn't have, a, you know, we, we get our news from the newspaper. We got our news from a few outlets, a few very powerful individuals, you could say, who controlled media, controlled the narrative. What's happened in a good way, but also it's become problematic, is anybody with an internet signal um, living anywhere they want, it could be in the basement of their parents' home as a 13-year-old, can have more influence than any of the big media outlets. And that is where the challenge for us is, is how do we get as many people you know, listening to the same signal? The problem is, though, there are only two reasons why social media get likes and hits, so to speak. One is if you're attacking, right? So if you're, right. you know, if you're a hater, so to speak, as my 13-year-old says, or you're a flexor, which is you're just saying how great your life is. Those are the two types of things that seem to be getting all kinds of looks. So maybe telling the truth isn't always going to get you uh, likes. And if it doesn't get you likes, it doesn't get you revenue. And that's the challenge we have in social media. I'm somewhat hopeful that that can be fixed. But yeah. it's interesting that you brought up vaccine he hesitancy because the number two uh, in uh, JBGS downloads uh, is a 2020 orthopedic forum on telemedicine in the era of COVID-19, which is basically a tutorial on the virtual orthopedic examination uh, by Scott and Martin's group uh, at Mass General in Boston. And it, it's a, a, a fantastic monograph, really, of showing how to measure range of motion uh, and uh, to uh, intera interact with the patient virtually uh, to be able to do as good an exam as possible. And I think that uh, the whole business of virtual visits uh, in the United States is going to continue to expand because of its convenience. Uh, and I believe that there will be research that we are both going to be publishing you know, that documents that it can be effective, uh, not probably as much as an in-person exam as far as communication goes, 
But as far as decision-making and shared decision-making, it, it can probably be just, just as good. So uh, it's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon that's, uh, that COVID has brought us, really. Right. And imagine, imagine you and I, early 2019, we would have never dreamed that we would spend as much time communicating virtually uh, as we are now. And in fact, you know, after uh, March 11th, which was, you know, I guess the WHO's, you know, calling coronavirus uh, or the COVID-19 a global pandemic, everyone pivoted. But orthopedics, I remember a LexisNexis, it was a survey, and they talked about in the U.S. particularly, um, you know, various groups that had pivoted quickly. Orthopedic surgeons were way ahead of everyone. Orthopedic surgeons, and for, for surprisingly, I recall urologists being high on that list, but Orthopedic surgeons pivoted very quickly uh, to telemedicine and also to a virtual communication. I thought at that time I was probably going to be a, a bubble. Um, and for sure, you know, as things have gotten back a little bit more in person, we are seeing people come down. But um, I think it's here to stay. I, I, I don't I can't ever imagine major societies for organizations not having a hybrid approach, you know, to getting people to be able to attend. And more importantly, um, I think surgeons and we figured out, you know, where it makes sense to use virtual technology most efficiently. Uh, and I think it's here to stay. So great, great paper and a great choice. Right. Well, the tennis ball's back on your side of the court. Yeah. So th third um, and certainly not least, there's probably lots that could have made it and lots of honorable mentions, I'm sure. But one I know is near and dear to both our hearts uh, is the topic of hip fractures. And this one oh, actually yes. and this one actually made. Uh, very easily uh, the top five um, most viewed uh, papers. And this wasn't uh, the health trial, which I thought it might be, uh, but it actually isn't. It was a meta-analysis that was done um, using the OrthoMind, which is the Machine Learning Insights database. We have about 103 million data points now. So what we've been able to do is combine data um, in it. But basically, this was a, um, a meta-analysis entitled total versus hemiarthroplasty, total hip arthroplasty versus hemiarthroplasty for displaced femoral neck fractures. Um, and this was published in May of 2021, um, including about just over 3,000 patients in 16 randomized trials. And what we had done here was, you know, then the health trial, which was, you know, as you recall, one of the larger, um, you know, contributors to this particular study had found that there was no difference between these two treatments at at uh, 24 months, you know, in overall uh, reoperation rates. And even with respect to function, functional scores were pretty similar. The question we were getting from everyone was, well, you know, total abarthoplasty really doesn't get its, you know, sort of, you know, real benefit until many years after. So this review looked specifically at, okay, well, what happens between one in two years, one in five years, which in fact still demonstrated there was indifference. But we did identify that after a five-year period, there may be some benefit of total arthroplasty. So there was that issue that had we followed patients many, many years, there was that evaluation. So I think for that reason, it, uh, it became important to our orthopedic community because it did give them context to you know, roughly timelines. Now, whether we believe that to be fact or not, but it is currently the evidence we have. Right. And... It continues to interest both of us in yeah. terms of uh, future, future yeah. endeavors. And we're talking about large cohort studies. And that's right. It, uh, it, it's been an, a topic that's been with me ever since my early days uh, as a medical student, actually. So um, I, I continue to appreciate any advances. And I think that uh, that's an advance, that meta-analysis. 
Mark, can I just ask you a question? I have never asked you this before, but when did you really uh, get excited about research in the area of hip fractures? Because, I mean, you know, in 1994, I remember the paper that came out in JBJS that you had written about. I mean, how many years prior to that had you really decided, okay, this is it. I'm going to spend a big part of my career trying to sort out this particular uh, problem. Yeah, well, the, 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 the very brief summary is uh, uh, it, it's actually 1981. Yeah. Uh, I was a medical student at USC, uh, and uh, the attendings at uh, LA County General were advocating the muscle pedicle graft for all femoral neck fractures. And then I was a very young resident on call with Dr. Hansen, and a 62-year-old gentleman came in with a, a displaced femoral neck fracture, and Dr. Hansen said, what should we do? And I said, muscle pedicle graft, and he laughed at me. I mean, not just a chuckle. I mean, really, are you kidding? You're crazy. That's not, no one would do that. So the fact that it could be the answer to every femoral neck fracture 1,100 miles down the road and a joke 1,100 miles to the north is why I became an academic, really, because somebody's got to be right, you know? Yeah. So anyway, that's... Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my last one and the last one of our, uh, our ortho Joe meeting of today uh, is on uh, rotator cuff tears. And I just, uh, there was a couple of uh, honorable mentions and uh, number four was also a, a rotator cuff uh, tear, uh, sling versus no sling uh, after surgery. It turns out it was a manuscript from Switzerland that really sling doesn't apparently make that much difference. And in fact, the patients with no sling had better functional outcomes. And then number five was a transexamined acid reduces the rate of periprosthetic infection after revision of asymptomatic arthroplasty from, from Rothman, uh, which makes sense because, you know, you prevent the hematoma, you're less likely to have bacteria to find a home in cultures. But the, the number three uh, came from Norway, and it's a 10-year follow-up of uh, tendon repair versus physiotherapy in the treatment of small and medium-sized rotator cuff tears uh, and had uh, only 103 patients, but they followed 91 for 10 years. And at 10 years, the differences in outcome between primary tendon repair and physiotherapy for uh, small and medium-sized uh, cuff tears had increased with better results for primary tendon repair. And we orthopedic surgeons always appreciate information that documents what we think to be true. And this was a small, but really, really well done long-term outcome of an RCT, uh, which, uh, which, which gives us all, I guess, uh, encouragement to continue to think about rotator cuff repair uh, in patients. Yeah. You know what I tell you is that um, when I looked at actual counts of people reading, number six and number 10 in 2021 for us were both topics related to rotator cuff. I was just looking them up as you were speaking because I didn't know you were, I didn't know what your three were going to be today, actually. So, but it's interesting also that there's been a real push in rotator cuff, not to necessarily focus specifically on surgery as, you know, surgery A versus surgery B, but you know, what are some of the minimally invasive um, you know, approaches that are non-surgical as being coming up? So you know, our number six and number 10 were both related to, one was looking at uh, platelet-rich plasma, which in and of itself oh, sure. has had lots and lots of interest in trying to, trying to understand that. And then the other one was prolotherapy, which is again, another you know, injectable yeah. therapy um, for rotator cuff tendinopathy. Now, whether or not that goes back to this perception that maybe we need more 
you know, uh, non-operative approaches, or maybe the operative approaches, you know, you know, you know, in terms of innovation, you know, there there is a potential plateau, or we just need more research in that area. But you can see lots and lots of interest uh, in the area of uh, you know proximal humerus, uh, you know, fundamentally, but rotator cuff in, uh, in and of itself, not an easy issue. You know, I, I think of the hip fracture, you know, the shoulder, the wrist. You know, all these are just areas that as much we you know decades and decades of research but we continually see lots of uptake which means you know research yeah. is alive and well uh, in this area <laughs> and we'll still yeah. have stuff to publish we'll have stuff yeah. to publish well, jbs will never not have stuff to publish and the good news is once everyone publishes at oe we can take that information and yeah. continually try to you know synthesize it in our own way so it's, it's good it's business is good for both of us i think in 2022 <laughs> yeah yeah, well, this has been great, Mo. I think we should uh, just plan on doing this every year, kind of a, you know, what's the hottest thing going in our respective journals. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's a good way, I think, to end the year. And, and a special time of year, you can tell it's special because I don't have my JBGS tie on. I have my, my oh, yeah, yes, very good. Tie on. So, yes, uh, lovely, lovely. Holiday, it's 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 holiday time. It's it's time to see people and you know be thankful for what we have and also look to the future. You know what I might say, and I know we haven't discussed this, but you and I uh, should think about um, what we might think are the upcoming trends. So maybe early in the new year we can go ahead and you know make some predictions wow. about where we think things are going to go, and we'll look back at it. You know, I mean, I, like I said, I'm looking back at some of the stuff that we published in January. And I must say, I was a little bit amazed at uh, how some of this stuff played out, uh, you know, to, uh, through the end of the year. Yeah, well, we'll add that to the list. So, there you go. Anyway, have a great holiday season with your yep. family and uh, you too. A healthy and hopefully more normal 2022. And cheers. And we'll see you at the next Ortho Joe. Absolutely. Thanks, Seth. Bye.